Our message this morning is one that I feel needs a great deal of explanation. And I feel that it's one that is misunderstood to a great extent. As you know, Paul had not been an eyewitness of the incident that he relates here in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Neither had he gained his knowledge by what we might classify as a report from other people. He received it of the Lord. At the time, in the way, I don't think any of us could say, while we certainly could surmise that it perhaps took place when Paul spent his three and a half years in the Arabian desert. I think perhaps that we can understand in a better way and use this incident if we're what we might call acquainted with uh, the remarkable transition period that took place immediately after Paul's conversion. Here was Paul, a very zealous individual desiring to see the law be the prime factor in the economy of Israel. And he was so zealous for the law, and he was such a zealous individual for the Pharisees, that we read in the book of Acts that after the Apostle Paul was converted, that all the churches in Judea and throughout the regions of Samaria had rest. This is because of the efforts of one man. But Paul on the road to Damascus, with the list of names of Christians that dwelled in Damascus, was struck down in the road by a light from the Lord, and there came about one of the greatest changes that has ever taken place in the heart of any man. Paul confessed in that road that it was the Lord that struck him down, and he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord delivered to Paul his commission, and the apostle Paul was able to say at the end of the book of Acts, just before he went to Rome, or uh, before he took his boat ride across the water at the expense of the Roman government, that he had been faithful to the commission and to the vision that the Lord had delivered to him when he was struck down. Now in Galatians, the first chapter, in verses 17 and 18, we read a little bit about the character of Paul's stay. During this transition period, in the Arabian desert. And we read in verses 17 and 18, Neither went I up to Jerusalem, to them that were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and abode with him fifteen days. And so Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, and he went on into the city of Damascus. He preached to the Jews there, and he was such a zealous preacher that the Jews went about to kill him. And the Christians had to let Paul down over the wall of the city of Damascus in a basket. And he fled. But instead of going to Jerusalem to commune with the apostles, those that were apostles before him, he turned and went into the Arabian desert and was there alone in the Lord's Bible College for three years. And when he came back, of course, he had received what we feel was the body or the basic element of the dispensation of grace which was committed into his hands. Now, we can believe that it was during that time that he spent in the Arabian desert 
during what we would call silent contemplation, that the what we would call grand truths of the gospel were revealed to Paul, and they were revealed to him, unveiled to him, in such a way as that he was the only individual that took part in the revelation, and they were revealed only to him. He received them from the Lord, and he became an apostle in every sense of the word, that the other apostles were apostles, he had the signs of an apostle. And so when he speaks in this passage of scripture that we're considering this morning, we have to realize that he speaks with the authority of one that had been with Christ and one that possessed in every sense of the word the requisites, the prerequisites for being an apostle. And therefore when we read his words, we have to consider in a contextual way everything that he says to see what portion of what he says applies to us in a direct way and what portion would apply in an indirect way. The simplicity of the way that Paul describes this incident here, this memorial, I feel fits in in a perfect way with the simplicity of the gospel record. One can stop and wonder how it can have been possible for such an incident to be turned as it has been turned into a weapon of what we might call uh, sacrificial or sacerdotal pretense or even spiritual oppression. I think perhaps it's the too prevalent neglect of the observance of the Lord's Supper that's caused this very thing. And it has no doubt to a great extent been the natural and inevitable result of the abuse of the Lord's Supper, and of course that is the indifference of the church. I think the Christians today are afraid to stand at the foot of the cross and look up at Christ in the Lord's Supper and say, Lord, it was because of my sins that you're there, that I realize that, and I realize that because you're there, my sins have been paid for, and I can go out and tell others. I think Christians today in the so-called grace movement realize that they possess a great body of truth, but I don't think they understand. They're willing to receive truth, they're willing to receive fact, but when it comes to the devotional portion of the scripture, that's its call for them to sacrifice themselves. They say, well, you've quit preaching now and you've gone to meddling in my affairs. They're willing to say, that they're backers of the Pauline gospel, they're willing to say that they believe in the dispensation of the mystery, they're willing to say that they believe in the progressive revelation. But when it comes to living a life, a separated life, a life which yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where the line is drawn. And we have a greater number of contentions that arise because of precepts and practice than we do of what we might call doctrine. Now, of course, there's a great deal of doctrine contained in precepts and practice, and I think the Apostle Paul delivers more precepts and practice to us than he does doctrine, because the body of the doctrine is already contained in the theology that we see in the Old Testament and in the theology that we see in the gospel. And I think one that has a working knowledge of the Old Testament and a working knowledge of the gospel can well see that particular fact. I think the false or exaggerated use of the Lord's Supper 
always provokes the individuals that are guilty of the exaggerated use to what we would call the opposite extreme of a separated life. I think that if we would urge the claims of the Lord's Supper, the claims of the memorial of the Lord's Supper on the minds of Christians, and see them turn and look upon Christ, not once every three or four months, but daily in their lives, not observing the physical element, but observing in their heart's mind the memorial that Christ has died for them, and live daily with the sight of a suffering Savior, but not only a suffering Savior before them, but of a risen Savior, of a Savior that's victorious over sin, it would make, it would make a great deal of difference in a separated life. This morning I would like to deal with the Lord's Supper in three aspects. That is, as a memorial, as a symbol, and as a means of spiritual edification. And I think these three means would perhaps contain more truth for us than searching out all the doctrinal portions of Scripture concerning it could possibly contain. The first thing that we read in this passage in reference to memorial is this sentence. It says, This do in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. For how long? Till he comes. Now Christ's own, Christ's own word set forth as a fact and act of personal remembrance. And Paul's word, as a long time witness to the great sacrifice, also adds to the words that Christ has already said. And taking the two together, both Christ's words and Paul's words, it appears, the Lord's Supper appears as a memorial of Christ and him crucified. Of himself, we might say, in all truth, the meaning of his earthly manifestation. The Lord came and lived on this earth, and he lived a perfect life. And yet the men on this earth did not see fit to recognize the fact that Christ had lived a perfect life. And so, at the end of some 33 years on this earth, the men of this earth, being in their own hearts more righteous than Christ took him and took his life from him because they felt that he was a greater sinner than were they. And yet, we as Christians, in looking back on this event, would in some way or another abuse the fact that we should observe a memorial to it. In great circles, I realize that religious rites and what we might call Christian rites and ceremonies are very few, and justly so. I don't think there should be too many things done without a heart knowledge and without a heart desire that would give impetus to the thing that's done. But certainly the commands of Scripture must be obeyed. And when we begin the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, now if you'd like to be followers of me, come along. He says in very emphatic terms, Be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. Now, of course, there may be some that would say that this passage of Scripture does not apply. Well, let's turn over to 1 Timothy and the first chapter of 1 Timothy. There we read, beginning with the 12th verse of 1 Timothy, the first chapter, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor 
and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in, in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now notice, if you please, verse 16. And hide it in your heart, show it forth in your life, and memorize it so that you know it completely without faith. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them. To which one? Which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. This takes us back to the very instant when the Apostle Paul was transformed from the injurious blasphemer that he was to an apostle of the grace of God. And the people, the individual that Paul is writing to here, Timothy, was to realize and was to proclaim to those under him that Paul was the pattern, the outline, the blueprint for those afterwards being saved to follow. Now in 2 Timothy, in the first chapter, we read, beginning with verse 8, Be thou therefore, be not thou therefore, ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Notice what he says now. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Notice verse 13 very, very carefully. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. The word form, translated form in this sentence, is the same word that translated pattern in 1 Timothy, the first chapter and verse 16. Paul says in 1 Timothy, I am an outline, a blueprint, a pattern. Here he says, Hold fast to the outline, the pattern, the blueprint, the guidepost of sound words which thou hast heard of me. Now this again takes us back to the very start of his ministry. Where did Paul meet Timothy? He met him in about the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And Paul says, from here on, Timothy, you follow the blueprint that I showed you by life, by living, by revelation, and by command of the Lord. Now, we may regard this, rem this memorial 
in its relation both to those who observe it and those who don't observe it. As a method of keeping the fact of Christ's self-surrender vividly before the minds of those who believe in him and love him in relation to those who observe it, and as a testimony that appeals with silent eloquence to a thoughtless, careless world that does not observe. I think in this respect that it resembles other scriptural memorials. We have a memorial back in Genesis, the 22nd chapter. Turn back there with me if you will. Genesis 22 and verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Why did he do it? He did it as a memorial of the fact that the Lord appeared to him on the mount and saved his son from being sacrificed by Abraham himself. And Abraham set it up as a memorial. And it can be seen, it says here, unto this day. Of course, talking about the day of Abraham. Turn over to the 28th chapter with me, if you will. Genesis 28 and verses 18 and 19. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stones that he had for his pillow and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, If God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that, shall, and all that he shall give me, I will surely give the tenth unto him. He set up this pile of stones as a memorial to the fact that he had seen God in his vision and in his dream. Turn over with me, if you will, to Exodus, the 12th chapter, and verses 24 through 27. Exodus 12. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever, and it shall come to pass when ye come to the land which the Lord will give you according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service, and it shall come to pass, and your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? that ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. Now, of course, some might say, Well, this is connected with the law. But when was the Passover? Was it after the law was given? Indeed not. It was before the law was given, while the children of Israel were still in bondage to the Egyptians. And so this is the memorial. And as we continue to read through the Old Testament, there are at least 15 places where we see memorials set up and where they were to be observed perpetually by the children of Israel. When we think how easily the most important things fade away from our memories, while the trifling things, the things that really don't matter too much, seem to linger on, it amazes me because sacred impressions are obliterated 
by what we would call the baser influences. And we may well recognize, and I think with devout thankfulness, that this particular memorial is preserved for us in Scripture. Because a lot of the memorials that Israel had committed into their hands, even before they received the law, were memorials that were to be carried down mouth to mouth. And they were lost in a very short time. And of course, Israel drifted away from the Lord. And when their leaders, such as Moses, who received some of the memorials, and Joshua, who received some of them, died, the nation of Israel drifted away from God. But we today have evidence and simple evidence in the observance of this supper that this memorial shall not pass away, but shall be with us until he comes. I think the fact that the church is here is proof that we should stop and consider the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was talking to the hunch yesterday on Fond du Lac, and I made the statement, I said, if for no other reason than to just stop and observe the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in our thoughts mind, we should observe the Lord's Supper. We have no command in Scripture which says we should not observe it. And even though we believe in progressive revelation, and perhaps some would go so far as to say that the Lord's Supper should not be observed, I feel that we as Christians who have come under the influence of the suffering Savior, who have come under the influence of his shed blood, who have come under the influence of his resurrection, who have come under the influence of his high priestly ministry, could do none less than stop and observe and give memorial and give time in our hearts to this thing that he has done. And I'm sure of this, that the Lord is not going to say, well, I don't want your, the sacrifice of your time in that way, because this will be adding to the glory of God. This will be adding to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. As a symbol, the Lord's Supper represents visibly that which in the nature of things is invisible. Not merely is bread a, a fitting emblem of the Savior's body and wine his blood and the breaking of the one and the pouring out of the other the manner of his death, but I think perhaps the service symbolizes the personal union exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and the soul. And I think it also symbolizes the fact that this relationship, this union between the Savior and the soul is a very vital union. I don't believe there's a soul here this morning that doesn't realize that there has to be a relationship established with God through the Lord Jesus Christ for anyone to get into God's presence. And I don't think there's anyone here that feels that they can themselves deserve to come into God's presence other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this figure as a symbol, the bread and the wine, perfectly illustrates the sacrifice which the Lord performed on the cross. He poured out his blood. And while his, while his bones were not broken, certainly his body was broken. And he broke his body for us, and he poured out his blood for us. It, bear, it bears witness as a figure to the deeper reality of life and faith. I don't know how many Christians really understand the deeper significance of the Lord's death. I don't know how many Christians 
I've ever stopped to really consider in a serious and in a heartfelt way the suffering, the untold anguish that the Lord went through on the cross. Mysticism, the cults, and various other so-called Christian groups have thrown bewitching glamour around the Lord Jesus Christ. They hang him on a little uh, crucifix, as they call it, and they place powers of grace in that crucifix. And they'll wave that crucifix over someone that's dying to see that their sins are obliterated. The crucifix can do nothing. And the individual that's there having the thing waved over, it's not going to make any difference to them whether you wave that thing over them or not. The important thing is, have they in a personal way looked on the Lord Jesus Christ? And as the old Negro spiritual goes, were you there when they crucified the Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Thank the Lord I was there, and thank the Lord when I observed the Lord's Supper, something that scoffed on my son. I can go back to that time when I observed the Lord on the tree, pouring out his life for me, for my sin. And I can see the Lord's broken body as they took him down from the cross and laid him in a sepulcher, where he laid for three days and three nights. But thank the Lord he is not there now. Thank the Lord that the Lord took him from the tomb through the operation of his own faith and according to the spirit of holiness because the Lord Jesus Christ had no sin. And therefore sin could not contain him within its grip. It had to release him. And because he died, his death became a vicarious one. It became one that would pay for the sins of all. There's no scriptural warrant whatsoever for saying that the wine is the physical blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no scriptural warrant whatsoever for saying that the bread is the actual body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no scriptural warrant for saying that any special grace is given to the individual that partakes of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbol of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came and had his body broken for us and had his blood blood shed for our sins. And that's all that it is. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, we do it as a memorial, having our minds and hearts refreshed to the fact that we are Christians and that we have come under the influence of Christ's blood and that we can look back to the time when we were not saved and when we were in darkness and in death. But now, thank the Lord that we can observe such a thing as the Lord's Supper. Thank the Lord that we can look back Thank the Lord that we don't have to look forward to the time when we shall be saved. The mystics and the cults speak of the Lord as having been administered by some occult person that gives it some spiritual virtue which would impart to the individual some supernatural power. To withhold the communion from a Lutheran would to be withhold salvation from it. To prohibit a Catholic from ever taking a communion would prohibit any relationship with God whatsoever. These things are not warranted by Scripture. Paul says that the Lord told him that this was to be done in remembrance of him, not for forgiveness of sin, not for special merit, not for grace, 
but as a memorial, and that the wine and bread were merely symbols. Now, the last point, the Lord's Supper as a means of spiritual edification. You know, observing the Lord's Supper is to me much like going and, and looking out a window at a beautiful sunset that fills the sky with God's glory. You know, never once when we're looking through that glass do we think about the fact that the glass is there. It's the transparent vehicle through which we look to see this glorious sunset. And I consider the Lord's Supper in the same way. The elements, the wine and the bread are no more than that transparent window is in the act of looking through and seeing the glorious sunset. We look through the Lord's Supper and we see the Lord on the cross. We see his blood shed for us. We look through that supper and we see the Lord in the tomb. And we look through that supper and we see the Lord risen from the dead, holding forth his hands in heaven, willing to receive those who will come by faith because of his grace into eternal life. I feel that as a means of spiritual edification, that here lies the reason for God's use of the memorial and symbol. And it's a transparent medium through which the soul may gaze upon the crucified Christ. It's a channel of what we would call spiritual influence by means of which the soul's fellowship with him can be deepened and strengthened and can be made new. Many of the Armenian churches have a doctrine that they call a second blessing. The Baptists call it the deeper life. But I think it's only the natural result of coming close to Christ. And I can remember when I was first saved, the first few months, I walked about continually with the thought that I had been a sinner, but now I was saved. That I had been lost, but I was now found. And my heart was so tender to sin. I couldn't do the slightest thing without the Holy Spirit touching my heart and life. And I think that myself, along with many other Christians, seem to have lost that moment, seem to have lost that touch, seem to have lost that feeling. They seem to have lost their tenderness. And they seem now to be stuck in a rut that would say, let us be scripturally correct above everything else above separation, above uh, testimony, above being correct as far as social witness is concerned for Christ. Well, I don't think that the Lord's Supper accomplishes anything by magical powers or by virtue of any supernatural influence that play, that's placed over the elements. But I think that we as Christians should be fully aware of the dangers that are involved in failing to stop and realize that we are what we are because of what Christ did on Calvary's tree. And as he delivered the Lord's Supper to those that were about him in the upper room, he did it that they might never forget that he hung on that tree for their sins, for your sins, and for mine. And that they might not use the Lord's Supper as a sacerdotal influence to draw people into a relationship with Christ because of its virtues, 
but that they might do it realizing that they had attained life not because of something they had done, but because of what Christ has done. And it is pure, purely a memorial of grace. There are very few Christian rites, I realize that, and I think it's good. But I think also our right or command to observe it is something which cannot be set aside. And I think as we begin with the first epistle that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, he says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us. Then we turn over to 1 Corinthians. And in the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, in verse 16, we read, be ye followers of me. In the 11th chapter in verse 1 we read, Be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. Then we go over to Philippians. And we read in Philippians, the 3rd chapter in verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me. And then we turn over to 1 Timothy. And we read in the 1st chapter of the 1st epistle to Timothy, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. And we go to 2 Timothy, the last epistle that Paul wrote, and we read the same thing. And so Paul says in his first epistle, be followers of me, and he says in his last epistle, be followers of me, and were there two patterns or outlines that we should follow. Is there a line drawn down the middle in the life of Paul when he was an example and outline to the Jews and when he was an example and outline to the Gentiles? Was there a mystery revealed by Paul to the Jews and a mystery revealed by Paul to the Gentiles that were two individual and separated things that were parallel and not connected? If that is true, then, of course, the scriptures are really a botched-up mess. And we have no way of following an outline or pattern, and we have no master architect to read this blueprint that the Apostle Paul laid down for us. I think of a surety that we have one outline. I think of a surety that there is one dispensation of God's grace. I think of a surety that there is one apostle of the Gentiles and that when he was separated in Acts 13, 2, that he became the pattern that he speaks about in 1 Timothy 16 and that he continued on through until his death at the hands of Nero in Rome as that same blueprint outline and master architect and master builder as he calls himself in 1 Corinthians 3. And I think if anything else happens, that the Old Testament certainly does not in any sense allow for room of two mysteries. I think if anything else is in Scripture, that it would certainly confuse the issue, would cause the people in the body of Christ to be confused, and we could not say that we have a sure word of prophecy. We could not say that the Scriptures were not of any in private interpretation. But we would have to say, as the soul sees it, so is it. The Apostle Paul was our outline, he was our pattern, and he still is. And we should begin when he was separated 
and we should follow him through in a physical way and set the scriptures down in such a way as that we might know just exactly what he is saying to us. Now we've said a lot of things about observing the Lord's Supper this morning, but what are the requisites for observing it? Paul says in this passage that some partook it unworthily. Are they Christians that have just fallen out of fellowship with the Lord? Paul says there are some that are dead because they observe. Are they those that were just spiritually unfit after having come under the influence of Christ's blood? Who can look back and observe the Lord's Supper and say, Lord, I thank you that you have died for me. Only those who have come under the influence of Christ's blood can observe it. And I feel those that were asleep in this, in this Corinthian church were those who had crept in unawares and who had never come under the influence of Christ's blood and who were, as Paul says, those that were false, that those that were true might be manifest as such. In the beginning verses, in around, around the middle of the 11th chapter, we read this. Now in this, that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. In other words, Paul said, there are those among you that are not saved, but they have to be there. So that those that are saved, those that are true, those that are followers of Christ and followers of me may appear as such. So the requisite, the only requisite that there is for observing the Lord's Supper is are you saved? Have you met the Lord? Were you there when they crucified the Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Have you met the Lord at Calvary? If you have not, I would advise you, invite you, plead with you to accept him before it's eternally too late. The signs of the time seem to indicate that the day is near when the Lord shall return and take his church from the earth. Will you be taken or will you be left? You needn't get through any rite or ceremony to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe. Believe and through his grace, by your faith, salvation shall be committed to you. And your soul shall enter into an eternal relationship with Christ. And ye shall look back and say, I observe the Lord's death. I observe the Lord's burial. And I observe the Lord's resurrection as one that was there. As one that saw him nailed to the tree. As one that saw him come again from the dead. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this passage of scripture and we do pray that in the days to come as we study it as we seek out the truths that are applicable to our lives that you will give us the power the wisdom and above all the desire to do those things that we would find regardless of what this life may offer for us if there should be one here that does not know thee that is without the realm of safety we pray that that one might through your grace through his faith, come to the knowledge of Christ and the salvation. For we pray in his name and for his sake, the one that has died and the one that has been risen from the dead for us. 
Jesus Christ.